I want to invite you that you would open your Bible to the epistle, the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. It's amazing when you're studying God's Word, and we're going line upon line, verse upon verse, that when you finish uh, one chapter, uh, you want to know where we're going next, just flip the page. And that's where we're going next. We're studying the Bible, we're looking through these epistles, and we finished 1 Thessalonians last week. We took our time there. The theme that Paul was sharing with the church of Thessalonica was be ready. He was reminding this new believing church, this growing church, that they would be ready for the rapture of the church. That was the concentration, that they would be found in a way blameless when the Lord returns for his church. Now he goes from the Lord returning for his church to the second epistle, the Lord returning with his church. And that's why the second epistle to the Thessalonians now gives reference and focuses on the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have to know the difference today as we study the Bible and Bible prophecy, eschatology, which means last day events, through prophecy and Bible truth. The difference between the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church will happen first. That's when Jesus comes for his church. And then the second coming will happen after the seven-year tribulation period when Jesus returns to rule and to judge the earth. And that's when he comes with his church. So what is Paul telling the church here of Thessalonica? Maintain a healthy church as you wait for these events. And it's not simply about growing a church, but that it would grow the right way. I think too many times we look for the Lord to grow his church, but is it growing in a healthy way? It's not simply about growth. I want you to know that today. It's about health. Are you growing the right way today? Are you growing in your faith in Jesus Christ? You can say, well, you know what? I've been with Christ, walking with him for 30 years, but have you grown throughout those 30 years? Or are you repeating year one 29 times? Are you truly growing in the Lord? So he's reminding them so that they have an effective testimony in a proper response to sound eschatology, last day events, given to us in Bible truth and that we would be walking in obedience. Now what happened during the time that he wrote the first epistle and the second one? Well, false doctrine had come into the church. And know this even, if the enemy cannot attack the church from outside, he will attack the church from inside. And he came in to sow seeds of confusion with false doctrine. And people came with false teaching into the church of Thessalonica, teaching them that the second coming had taken place already and that they were living during the tribulation period. So they're doubting, they are confused, they are wavering in their faith to some capacity. And he comes and he tells them that is not the truth. He, he writes as a response of this false now doctrine, clearing up destructive teachings, and then again sowing seeds of truth, of sound biblical teaching to them so that they would grow and they would be edified. So three reasons as to why he writes again. And I'd like to let you know these so that you would take note of them as a Bible student. The first reason he writes is because they're undergoing persecution. This church is suffering for their faith. This church isn't comfortable. They're suffering. They're going through trials. They're going through testings. They're going through tribulations. Chapter 1 is a church that needs encouragement. So today, if you need encouragement, this chapter is for you. He's writing to the persecuted church that's discouraged to encourage them. In chapter 2 of this epistle, he writes... Due to false doctrine. That's the concentration there. To so the church that's not only discouraged, but the church that has some that are disturbed because of false doctrine. So what does he do? He encourages, and then he enlightens. He writes to enlighten them, the Christian there. And then the third chapter, he concentrates on Christians who are being idle. That means that some thought that these events had taken place already, or because they were going to happen, they quit their jobs, they didn't pay their debts, they didn't go to work, and they said, well, 
since Christ is coming or since he already came, I'm just going to relax and live off the hard work of other people. I'm just going to quit my job and move in with another Christian. I'm going to tell you, don't do that here because they'll tell you not to do that here. You come in knocking at your brother's house because you quit your job, they'll tell you, go ask your boss for your job back. But notice what they did. They were being irresponsible, some. And they were being disobedient. So whether they were discouraged, whether they were disturbed or disobedient, he then was going to exhort them. Those three things we see in Scripture, and we ask the Lord that he would show us, that he would encourage us, that he would enlighten us, that he would exhort us so that we have the proper balance between our belief and our behavior. You believe this, but now you should balance it with behavior. How does your life look in light of what you believe? I'm going to invite you that you would stand with me this morning as we read God's Word. And we'll read those first five verses of chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. I'll read the odd verses. You read the even verses out loud together. God's Word tells us this. Paul, Savanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you bring encouragement to us in our moment of need. That you meet us right where we are, whether we are discouraged right now, going through tribulations, trials, and persecutions. Lord, would you encourage the downcasted today? Would you lift us up by your spirit? Lord, that our hearts and our minds, our eyes would be pointed toward you. In Jesus' name, together we would say, amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is Glorifying God in Tribulation. How to glorify God in tribulation. They're going through tribulation, they're suffering, they're facing persecution, but how can you go through that and glorify God at the same time? Because whether we're suffering, whether we're being tested, whether... Uh, we find ourselves being persecuted. Notice, God has called you to go through that while glorifying Him at the same time. That you would have godly character. That you would represent Him well. That you would have a godly testimony. So He's encouraging them with praise. But He's not praising them. Notice, He's praising God. And let's read here, beginning in verse 1, the greeting of this encouragement of praise. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. We know this is a band of brothers that are following Paul and his leadership through, through his different missionary journeys. And not only was it Paul, but notice he also says it's Silas or Silvanus and Timothy, a true son in the faith. He writes to them as a second correspondence to the fellowship of believers. And he says this, to the church or to the ecclesia, to the assembly to the gathering. This is the church here of the Thessalonians. Now, I want you to notice a word that he uses there to describe this church. He says, to the church of. Would you circle the word of? In his correspondence here, he writes, this is to the church of Thessalonica. This is to the gathering. This is to the assembly. This is to the believers of that church. A new growing church that he had found on his second missionary journey as he planted it and then moved on, only three Sabbaths, he remained with them, three weeks. But they continued to grow the church of Thessalonian. And notice what's important here because this is where they are called. They are called there. They live there. This is a church that is placed at a certain place with a certain calling from God for such a time as this. It's the same with us as Christians. We are the church of Calvary Chapel of Downey. But what's most important than the of is the in. 
Because notice, they're of Thessalonica, but they're in, notice the word, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know who you are. You're the church of that place. But you are a church that is in God our Father. He includes himself. He says, our, this is a family that we belong to. Notice that today. You're in God. It doesn't matter where you're at. It matters whether you're in God or not. It doesn't matter if, if you come to church, but are you in God? Are you in Christ Jesus? It's not about the denomination. It's not about the name. It's not even about the location, although that's important because that's where God's called you. But more important is, are you in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, do you notice there that he says, our Father? He's including himself because he says, this is a family that belongs to God. How many of us know today that the church belongs to God? Amen? So he says, in God, the church that belongs to God, our Father. This is God's fatherhood in relation to the believer. He's reminding them this. I think it's important that we're reminded of this today, right now, regardless of how you could come in this morning, especially if you're facing trials and tribulations, that you would be reminded of our God and Father, that God is our Father, that, that we have a relationship with God, and it's a relationship where He is our Father, and if He is our Father, remember this, you are a child of God. You're a child of God. And when everything goes wrong, especially in this church right now, it's important that they remember that nothing happens that God first will not allow that has gone before his presence before. First, it would have had to go through the presence of your father. He is your father. He knows and he sees. He's your provider. He's your nourisher. He's your protector. This is what he's reminding him of. This is who God is. Now, do you see why this is so important to them, especially comforting this church during this season? That he's comforting the church during a season of suffering. That he's allowing them to realize that even through suffering, their position in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ was important because that was a position of protection, that that was a position of security, that they were secure and they were protected in God the Father. Know this today, regardless of what you're going through, you're going through it in God, who is your Father, who loves you, who sees you, who knows the situation, who cares about you, who's your protector, who's your provider, who's your nourisher, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church that belongs to God, notice the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he opens up most of his epistles and letters. He opens up with these two words, grace and peace. He reminds them, you need to hear right now God's grace. You need to be reminded right now of God's peace, that God has his gift and favor upon your life. Grace means that we did not deserve the gift. And who was the gift? The gift was Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's grace, and who is it? It's to you. His unmerited favor, God's grace is personal to you because he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And today it's important that you are reminded of the source of grace. Who's the source of all grace that we do not deserve, that is freely given to us by God's love? Is he himself, God's the Father, is the source of all grace. And even God the Son in Christ Jesus is the source of all peace. Because you only find those two things in the Father and in the Son. Now, we know very well that you only experience God's peace when you first have experienced God's grace. There's so many people that say, well, I, I need peace in my life. I'm struggling. I don't have inner peace. I'm wrestling. I'm anxious. I, I, I continue to look for something that I never obtain. Notice this. You will never find the peace of God until you first experience his grace in your life. Grace is what then brings peace afterward. When you know that you're forgiven, when you know that, yes, I was a guilty sinner, but I've been forgiven by God's grace that I did not deserve. Notice what that produces in your life. The forgiveness that you have, the salvation that you receive then brings peace 
in your life. And he opens up with this salutation, with this greeting, because in these two simple words encompasses God's answers to all of man's problems. You want to know what the answer is right now to your situation? It's found right there in those two words. Grace from God our Father and peace from God our Father. This is God's answer to all of man's needs. Grace and peace. And specifically grace because that's how we receive every spiritual blessing. That's how you receive the blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ. And peace in Christ Jesus. What is peace? It's the inner wholeness. It's the wholeness from inside that grace brings. Do you want peace right now? Then ask the Lord, Lord, I need more of your grace. I need to run towards the grace of God in time of need to help me. Or I need to experience his grace for the very first time by surrendering to him and calling on him to be my Lord and Savior. Only by God's grace can you experience peace. Now, do you see these two words also that he includes in that verse? Verse 2, he says, from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses these two words as he places the Father and the Son as equals. Two of the persons of the triune God, God the Father and God the Son. He exhibits here the acceptance of the full deity that Christ is God. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He places them as equals. Christ is God. He is the Son of God. You always want to know if someone truly believes what you believe, and oftentimes people say that. You know what? You're a Christian. I believe the same thing that you do. Well, ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? Because if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God, the tri- a part of the triune Godhead, then you don't believe the same thing as I do. Jesus is God. He made himself man. He died on the cross. He resurrected on the third day. And because of him, we are saved. That is the gospel there. And here he puts them as equals. He's giving divine glory to the son as well. But notice here where we'll spend our time in verses 3 and 4 because he says, we can't stop thanking God for you. And this is where he gives a praise report about them. In fact, he says it this way, we are bound to thank God always for you. He's going to praise God, but as he praises God or as he gives a praise report, he makes sure that the praise report gives praise to God. You know, it's important that when we give a testimony, the testimony brings praise to God. When we give a praise report that it would be praising God, not ourselves, is there's always a temptation of saying, I'm going to share this praise report, but the praise is all for man. No, the praise belongs to God. And what does he say? I always thank God for you. When is he thanking God for them? At all times. Brothers and sisters, notice what he says. Brethren, I'm thanking God. Notice, he's not thanking them for them. He's thanking God for them. Because he knows it is God who's doing the work in them. Who's receiving all the attention? God is. Who's the focus on? God. It's not on man. It is what God is doing in the people. It is what God is doing through the people. So many times we start to thank people for what is happening instead of thanking God for what he's doing through them. And there's nothing wrong for being and showing appreciation and encouragement one to the other, but we have to realize it's the Lord. He's not flattering them. He's careful that they are not proudful in what he's about to tell them. Too many times when we start thanking people, the attention is placed on a man, and then man becomes prideful because they think it depends upon them. You know, it's so interesting how the human body works. They would say it's so sensitive that when you pat the human body on the back that the head swells. You've seen that before, right? You start to pat people on the back, good job. You know, their head starts to get, become big. He's not doing this. He's keeping the attention on God, and he's saying, I'm thanking God for the work that he's doing in you, and I'm letting you know as a form of encouragement. Who gets the glory here? The Lord gets the glory here. I'm thanking God always for you. In fact, he says, I'm bound. What does the word bound mean? He says, I I, I owe this. I'm indebted to thank God for the work that he's doing in you. I see this as my obligation. I I see this as 
my responsibility that I, under, I am under these bonds. What kind of bonds were they? They were bonds of love. That this wasn't only a pleasurable exercise to say I'm praising God. This was his duty as a Christian in his life to praise God, even in persecution. And he says, this is fitting. Notice that in verse 3, as it is fitting, it's, it's rightly so. It's in response. It's because of what God is doing in them, because of their spiritual condition. He's affirming all of what the Lord is doing. Rightly so, this is fitting that I do this because of what God is doing. Do you see that he's practicing his own admonishing? In the previous epistle that he wrote to them, in the last chapter, he says, in everything give thanks. And that's exactly what he's doing there. He's thanking God. And he's also doing it in everything. Why? Because they're going through persecution there. Because they're suffering. Paul is suffering. The church is suffering because of their faith. And in suffering and in persecution, even in persecution, notice he is still giving thanks. It's important that we as Christians, even in persecution, even in suffering, even in testing, even in rejection, that we would say, but I'm still giving thanks. Yes, I'm going through it, but I'm still praising the Lord. My focus is on God. My eyes are on the Lord Jesus. So yes, things are not going well, but I can still come to church, raise my hands, and praise the Lord because he's the one that's in charge. And this is exactly the model that he's doing. Notice, it's not only prayer that changes people. It's not only prayer that changes situation. You know what also changes it? The perspective and heart and attitude. You know what changes it? Praise. We can still praise God as we're waiting. We can praise God as we're suffering. Do you remember when he was in Philippi? And he and Silas were there on stocks, unjustly beaten and in prison. And it said that the other prisoners heard them at about midnight. They were singing hymns and praising God. What's interesting about that is that the other prisoners were watching them suffer. And the world right now is watching the church, even as it goes through suffering, through persecution. How about this? Through opposition. The world is only getting darker. And you know what that means? That we as Christians should be shining our light for Jesus Christ even more so right now. But we should be doing it in a way that's praising the Lord. We should not be doing it in a way that's arrogant, that's prideful, that's presumptuous. You know what our conduct should look like? It should be one that is praising the Lord even as we go through opposition. You see, Satan, if he can put you in a circumstance that is difficult to weaken your faith, he will do it. But one of the greatest weapons or one of the best weapons with prayer to fight against Satan's strategies is praise. Lord, we're praying and we're praising you, we're worshiping you at the same time. We're thanking you. Now, they gave him reason to thank God. That's why this was fitting. That's why this was appropriate. And you know what he focuses on? Three reasons as to why he's thanking God for them, because of their virtues. This is the kind of church we want to be. These three reasons. They had a right reputation. Notice that. This is what the reputation that this church had. Three things. Your faith is growing. Number two, your love is abounding. And your patience is enduring. Would you remember those three things today? Your faith is still growing right now. Yes, you've discouraged, but it hasn't stopped you. Yes, you're facing opposition, but your love is still abounding. Yes, you may find yourself through suffering, but your patience is enduring. Three things that he would recognize them as a church that would give praise and thanks to God. Your faith is growing, your love is abounding, your patience is enduring. And notice as he continues there in verse 3, because your faith grows exceedingly. There's the first reason as to why he thanks God for them. This is why he's giving praise to God, because your faith is still growing. Because after you were saved, now you're being sanctified. Notice that. You were saved, but now you're growing in your sanctification. Now you're becoming more like Jesus. Now your faith is growing in Christ. 
And he doesn't only say your faith grows, but look at the word that he uses, the word exceedingly. That word exceedingly means that that it's growing vigorously. This faith that you have is growing strongly and vigorously. In fact, that word exceedingly, it's the growth of a healthy plant or a healthy tree. Your faith is growing like a healthy plant or a healthy tree. In fact, notice what he's saying. Your faith is still flourishing. Now, that's an awesome illustration that we receive as we look at this. That Christians who were being persecuted, Christians who were suffering, Christians that were going through trials, Christians who were going through tests, their faith was still flourishing. You know why their faith was flourishing? Because they were rooted in the right things. Your faith will not flourish until it's rooted in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Word of God. That's how someone's faith flourishes. That's why it produces fruit. That's why it becomes fruitful, our faith, because we're rooted and we're not just rolling like a tumbleweed. You know what they were doing? They were rooted in the right place. In fact, would you put a marker there in 2 Thessalonians and turn with me to Psalms chapter 1, because here it speaks of the life that is flourishing, of the believer that is blessed, of one who is rooted, one who is not uprooted, one who is grounded, one who's planted. That's the kind of Christian you want to be. You're not overly emotional. You're not overly discouraged. You don't get overly offended when persecution comes your way. You don't make it about yourself. It's so interesting. We are so selfish that we make even the trials and the tests that we go through about ourselves. You don't take everything so personal. Your faith is still growing because you're rooted So therefore, you're flourishing. Notice the blessed life there in Psalms 1. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't walk in the wrong place, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. Nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't walk, stand, or sit in the wrong place. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And in his law, notice how he is rooted He meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted. Circle the word planted in your Bible. That's what you should be. You should be planted by the rivers of water. The person that's meditating on God's word, they're planted. They know the truth. They believe the truth. They're flourishing in their faith because they're planted. Notice, by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. They're not going to dry up as Christians. It doesn't matter what happens, they're going to continue to flourish. And whatever he does shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so. This is the contrast of one that is not planted, of one that's not flourishing, of one that's not growing exceedingly. But the ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff. Have you ever driven through the desert and you see a tumbleweed being carried to and fro because of the wind? That's how a Christian is who is not planted. That's how Someone is, or the wicked is, here he even describes them this way, who have no grounds or no roots. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Notice, one circumstance goes one way, they're in that direction. Another circumstance goes a different way, they go through a different direction. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Do you see here what it looks like to have that blessed life that is consistently growing, that is flourishing? This is why Paul tells the church of Thessalonica, I'm thanking God, your faith is still flourishing. You're growing, you're producing fruit out of an outflow of being rooted in the Lord. Now, as we go back to 2 Thessalonians, I want you to know this, growth is important. You know why? Because growth is evidence of life. You know someone who has spiritual life, who the life of Christ is flowing through them? Because one symptom of life is also growth. And he's saying, I know that your faith is real because there's evidence. There's growth now here. And faith will always grow as you come to know more about whom your faith is in. Now, you will never trust God. You will never truly have faith in God if you don't know him. 
You, you want to have faith in the Lord? You want to trust in God? You want your confidence to be in him even right now through a difficult situation that you find yourself? Then get to know him better. Because you can't trust who you don't know. And here he says, I know your faith is growing, that you place your faith in him. He's your protection. He's your defense, especially in times of persecution. Your faith is real. It's been tested, so your faith can be trusted. Know this, until your faith is tested, then it cannot be trusted. You know what this church is doing? They're proving that they have genuine faith. Faith has to be exercised so that it can grow stronger. It's like a muscle. When you exercise a muscle, when you stretch that muscle out just the way faith is, then that muscle has an opportunity to grow. And God oftentimes will use tribulation and persecution as his ways of strengthening the faith of Christians. Tribulation and persecution, what are they? They're like a school that matures our faith. You found yourself going through persecution or through a trial, through suffering. You come out of it stronger when it comes to your faith if you have your faith and, and trust and eyes placed on Jesus. It's a way to develop our faith in the Lord. So what is he saying? I know you put your trust in him. I know you put your confidence in him regardless of the storm. Did you know that you can put your faith in him regardless of the storm? In fact, we're reminded in Matthew chapter 8, when the disciples were afraid, they were scared, they were panicking because they were in a storm. And oftentimes we look at the disciples and we say, how could they panic being in a storm if Jesus is present? Well, notice this. We oftentimes panic ourselves as well. But you know what Jesus tells them? He says, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And maybe he's telling us that today. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? You're not trusting me. And then he arose and he rebuked the winds, he rebuked the storm, he rebuked the sea, and there was a great calm. These Christians here in the church of Thessalonica, they were trusting in God through the storm, and their faith was growing. I like what John Blanchard, the Bible commentary, says. He says, so many Christians badly need a faith lift. Think about how many Christians need a faith lift today. Now, he didn't say a face lift, so don't go do something weird. How many of us need the Lord to lift our faith that we would as disciples of Jesus say, Lord, would you increase my faith? That my faith would continue to grow in spite of the circumstances. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, faith enables us to rejoice in the Lord that our infirmities become platforms for the display of his grace. This is amazing there. Faith enables us to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, notice, when you're trusting in God, going through tribulations, you're rejoicing in the Lord, that our infirmities, you know what they become, that trial that you're going through? It becomes a platform to display God's grace in your life. That yes, you're going through it, but it only displays God's grace because you trust him in that time. So what does it tell us about this church? That the first reason as to why he thanks God for them is that although they're being persecuted, they are not defeated. They experience opposition, but they continue to grow in Christ Jesus. This is the blessing of a growing church that had a testimony of a real faith. Why do I say real? Because persecution purifies the church. But persecution destroys any type of false profession of faith. You always know that. When, when the church is persecuted, you then will see who's the real Christian, who the really are following Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't only their steadfast faith that strengthened them to withstand against the difficult circumstances, but you know what that faith did? That steadfast faith, it also motivated them to express a genuine love for one another. So how does God measure maturity as a Christian? How does God measure now, growth in the life of the Christian, he measures it first by our faith growing, as, and as of evidence of faith growing, is that then we're followed by love for one another. You see, it's one thing to trust God, but it's another thing to love his people. And if you say you trust God, your faith is growing, you know what's going to naturally happen as a result of your faith growing? Naturally, what will take place as you're flourishing is the fruit of the Spirit will happen, and you'll start to love one another more. You can't say, well, I'm growing spiritually with the Lord Jesus Christ, 
but I just don't love people. No, you know someone who's truly mature, not because of how much they know, not because of how many times they come to church. You know who the real spiritual people are, not because of how many verses they can quote, what position they have as far as the ministry. You know, you, you truly know the spiritual person by how much they're willing to love. And here you see here the second reason as to why he's thanking God for them is because their love is abounding. So he says, in the love of every one of you, all abounds toward each other. The second half of verse 3. Your faith is not only growing, your faith is real. And the evidence of that is that you love one another. You see, God puts us in certain situations to teach us how to love people. And God was using persecution to teach them to trust him more. God was using suffering to teach them to love one another more. That's what God does. Oftentimes, we think we're so loving. And then God puts us in a trial, and we find out we're not as loving as we thought we were. You know, sometimes you think you're so loving, and, you know, you think you're growing in faith. You're the most loving spiritual person out there. And then you get married, and you find out, well, I'm not as loving as I thought I was. And then not only do you get married, but then you say, oh, I think I have to hang this. I I'm, I'm, really, I'm back to being spiritual and loving. And then God gives you kids. And then you find out how, how much you really aren't loving. But God uses every circumstance, even in our own home, to teach us to be loving so that our faith grows. And he says, in spite of what you're going through, I see that your love is growing. In fact, every one of you, all of you, abounds. Circle the word there, abounds. That means that they had a love that was committed to one another. A love that was willing to sacrifice. A love that was willing to tell the truth. The word abounds means it's an expansive type of love. It's overflowing. It's unhindered. It's like the sudden surge of flood waters that are, it is overflowing its banks. That's the kind of love you guys have for one another. It has no measure. It has no limits. You love each other the right way. You're growing the right way. You're growing in your faith, trusting in the Lord, showing your faith is real. You're steadfast and you're growing in your love. Now, why is this important that he mentions their love that this is an indication of spiritual maturity? Because in our trials, in our suffering, you know what we can become? Very selfish. Oh, I can't believe they hurt me. Or they said that about me. Oh, they're persecuting me. This church had every reason to be hurt by the persecution and by the opposition. But you know what they did? They kept trusting God. They kept loving one another. And out of it, the Lord was glorified. Because of that, God received the glory. I want you to know something so that selfishness doesn't become something that binds you during suffering. Is that when you're going through suffering, if suffering is mixed with grace, if suffering is mixed with love, you know what it's going to produce? Suffering mixed with faith, suffering mixed with love, uh, with, with, with grace, it's always going to produce love. It will always produce love. When you're suffering and you're saying, but I trust the Lord, but Lord, I run to your grace. You know what's going to come out of that? Love for other people around you. It is faith that works through love always. It is faith that shows itself in love. Galatians 5, 6, faith working through love. Two things can happen as you're going through suffering. You either become bitter or you can become better. And you know what they had to become? They had to become better now. This is how God evaluates his church. Notice, by the way that we love one another. It's not about how many people come to church that makes a church spiritual, how popular a church is, how many times you tell people you're a Christian. Are you truly loving other people? As Christians, our faith in Christ should always culminate in true love for one another. Jesus said it himself when he told the disciples in John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Now, have they heard of this before? They, they already heard of this before. But he's telling them in a new way now. Because of Christ Jesus, because of my example, because of my command, because of who I am to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. What does he say? That you love one another. And notice how he continues. As I have loved you. How are we to love one another as God has loved 
hearts. Sometimes we tell people, you know, I'm going to love you, and how about we do this? It's going to be 50-50. I'll meet you halfway. That's not the type of love that God has demonstrated to us. You know the kind of love that they had? It was overflowing. It was expansive. It was deep as God has loved you. By this all will know that you are my disciples. This is how everyone will have an indication, identify you as followers of Jesus Christ. If you have love for one another, the world will only know that you're Christian if you have love for one another. And this is what's happening in this church. Yes, they were being persecuted, but they still remained loving one another. They were growing. They were progressing. It's too easy to let an event of persecution, of opposition, stunt your growth, hold you back, have you complacent, or you're shrinking back in your faith or in your love. Notice, these Christians were determined to continue to love one another. That's how you know they truly were trusting in the Lord. That's how you know God was actually doing a work in them through suffering, and it was producing godliness. They weren't becoming upset. You know what they were becoming? More godly. Through the trial, they were not becoming upset. They were becoming more godly. God fits us for service through suffering. You want to know what the best school of ministry is for people when they're serving the Lord? The best school of ministry is trials. (laughs) Because God teaches you patience. God teaches you maturity. I remember when I was 18 years old, I started Bible college. You know, 18 years old, everything seems like it takes forever, right? And everyone was asking, you know, what can we pray for one another for? And I raised my hand. I was probably the youngest one in the class. And they said, well, you know what? I'll ask for prayer that the Lord would give me more patience. And everyone started laughing in the class. I said, why are you guys laughing? <laughs> but little did I remember God's word. You know what? how the Lord gives you patience? Through trials. That's the school of maturity. That's the school of how God grows up his children. You, you want to be a blessing? Then notice what's going to have to happen. You need to be broken. God uses suffering to let you be a blessing in the lives of other people when we're broken. Have you ever noticed that maybe you grab a rose and you take a a rose petal out of the rose and you put it in your hand, you crush that rose? Open your hand and you know know what remains? The fragrance of the rose in your hand after it's been crushed in your hand. That fragrance remains. Now, Now, don't go home and destroy your garden, please. But sometimes that's exactly what the Lord does for us. We're in his hands, and he crushes us in his hands. He allows the crushing to to take place in in his hands. And then he opens his hands, and he allows the fragrance to flow. You know what that fragrance is? It's the fragrance of Christ Jesus, because we've been suffering in the hands of God. That's what the suffering did in the lives of these Christians. It gave them the fragrance of Christ. What is the fragrance of Christ? The love that they had for one another. If you look to the Lord while you're going through sorrow, then you can look to others and love, and then love starts to abound. Their faith was growing, their love was abounding, but their patience was enduring. Notice verse 4. This is the third reason as to why he's giving thanks to God for the work he's doing in them. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. We proudly tell other people about you. Now, he's not proudly telling other people because of their success of the Thessalonian church. He's not proud for them because of the numbers that they have or because of some type of reputation that they had gained before men. Notice, he's boasting of them because of these things. We proudly tell other churches about you. We're giving a praise report that's giving glory to God to other churches because, notice here, among the churches of God for your patience. Your patience, your faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. What is it that brings glory to God? Their patience, their tribulations that they're enduring. Now that word there, patience, is is the word endurance. That's what it means. You're enduring You're remaining under pressure. Patience is not simply waiting. That's that's what we think when we think of patience, that you are patiently waiting for something to happen. That's not what it means here. 
What he's referring to is perseverance. That you are persevering. Yes, you're going through it, but you're persevering. You're still here. You, your faith is still in God. You're still loving one another. You have not given in. You have not quit. You have not given up. Did you know that, that discouragement is not an excuse for disobedience? Do not allow the discouragement the enemy tries to bring in your life through opposition to give you a reason to be disobedient because that is not a reason. You know what he's saying? You're still enduring in your faith. You have persevered. You remained under pressure. You haven't become impatient in a situation. You've adjusted yourself to carry the load that is given to you in the circumstance that you're in, and you've learned how to live with it. You didn't get out of it. You learned under pressure, this is how I'm going to live for the glory of God in this trial right now. And you know why they were able to endure? Because they had faith. It was their trust in the Lord that enabled them to endure that suffering. That's when you know a believer is submitted when they're willing to endure. You want to know if you're truly submitted to the Lord? Are you willing to endure? Are you willing to endure suffering, the trial, the testing? Because that's exactly what this church was going through. Their hardships, notice there at the end of verse 4, you've endured in all of your persecutions, in all of your afflictions, in all of your tribulations that you currently are suffering. You have not renounced. And you didn't backslide. In fact, notice what he said. You persevered. You were steadfast. You were unshaken. You notice this is the right attitude to have when it comes to suffering. It's essential. It is required as Christians that we know how to suffer in the kingdom of God. Not, not thinking about self. Not thinking about comfort. But we're concentrated on God's kingdom. Not our, not our personal fulfillment of our own plans. Sometimes we think, well, I, I want to grow in Jesus Christ, but things have to be according to my preference or according to my plan. That is not how you grow. How you grow in your faith is saying, Lord, I'm submitted to you. My faith is flourishing because I'm rooted in your word. And therefore, my love is abounding. I'm choosing to willingly sacrifice for others. And I'll patiently endure the season and trial and testing that you have me in for the glory of God because I'm looking at your plan to be fulfilled, not mine. That is the attitude that they had for the glory of God, for the fulfillment of the purpose of what God had intended. They're not griping. They're not complaining about injustice. How many times have you gone through persecution, opposition, rejection? And you know what we like to do? We like to let everyone know how we're being treated. We like to fight and kick and resist. But notice, this church wasn't doing any of that. They were patiently enduring what they did not deserve. Sometimes we think, well, it's not fair. But the Lord never said it was going to be fair. But he said he would give you the strength to endure the suffering. And one day when he returns with his church, the second coming, notice what he'll do. He then, at that time, will right every wrong. He then will make everything and establish everything according to his justice. But we have to understand that the battle belongs to him. And there's purpose in every suffering that we go through, even in this life. God, God doesn't waste suffering. You know who wastes suffering? We do when we don't submit to God. God. God wants to use it in our lives to work for us, not to work against us. When we allow suffering to do what God has intended it to do to teach us in that moment of time in our lives. You know what it does? It produces maturity in our lives. It produces patience in our lives. But if we fight the situation, if we resist the situation, we make it harder than what it needs to be. And we end up immature and impatient. And that's why you have a lot of emotional Christians today. that They never grow. They end up immature and impatient their entire Christian life. Because they did not allow the suffering, the trial, the test to work for them and in them to produce a faith that is stronger. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter tells the church that's being persecuted the same thing. In this you greatly rejoice. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Then now for a little while, notice you're only suffering for a season. If need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Only if God sees that there is a need, only if there is an occasion, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a praise, 
honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? I'm allowing you to go through this so that when Christ returns, your faith would be found purified. Your faith would be found in a form that would glorify God. Your faith would be one that has been tested and it would be precious as gold. That notice as gold that perishes, this would be even now more pure. It would praise, honor, glory when Christ returns. You know what trials do, what persecution does, even here to this church? It not only tested their faith, it not only revealed their faith, but it caused their faith to grow in a way that pleased God. James chapter 1, verse 3, I'm going to read it to you this morning. Knowing that the testing of your faith, what does it do? Produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. What does it mean to let patience? Allow it to do what it needs to do. Don't resist, allow it. Submit to God. Surrender to the Lord. Let him do what he needs to do in your life. He's going to mature you. He's going to bring glory and praise out of this, that you may be perfect. Notice it means mature and complete, lacking nothing. That you would not lack nothing when it comes to your faith because you're trusting in him, because there's character that's being developed. Paul told the church of Rome in Romans 5.3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. I don't know when the last time was, but when we usually go through tribulations, we usually don't glory about them. That's not usually the things that we like to tell other people that we're going through. But he's saying we're glorying even in tribulations. We're glorying in them knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance. We're glorying knowing that God is producing endurance in our life. And perseverance, character. And you know what character is doing? It's reminding us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That one day we will meet with him. That one day we will be with him. So what is it that he thanks God for them? That their faith is growing. You're still trusting God. That their love is abounding. You're, you're overflowing with love for one another. This is why you're recognized in that you're patiently enduring every test and trial and situation during difficult time. But you know what we need to do when we go through those seasons of difficult trials and testings? Is run towards his grace so that we can have his peace. Amen? Let's pray.